On today's episode of the Full 94, we are going strictly mailbag. Obviously, I'll dive into a little bit of the NBA, uh, touch on the draft lottery here for a second, but man, there were so many good questions sent in um, for the mailbag segment that you know I, I took a few of those and, and we're going to make an episode out of it. So let's get right into it. It's the Full 94. Let's go. It is August 21st. Some exciting stuff going on, obviously. Last night, the draft lottery took place. Um, you know, obviously, we had some we had some playoff games as well. Um, essentially, if you eclipsed the 100-point mark yesterday, you were victorious. The Heat beating the Pacers 109-100. Rockets beating the Thunder 111 to 98, Bucks beating the Magic 111 to 96, and the Lakers beating the Blazers 111 to 88. So just score 111 and you should be all right. Uh, I thought the Heat Pacers game, the Heat looked great, man. They looked great. Um you know, I, I had a people a couple people ask me about the the Illini guys that currently aren't playing. Uh look, it's tough. I mean, that is a that's a talented team. It's a talented team. It's a deep team. In my opinion, you know, in my opinion, the Miami Heat are the deepest team in the NBA. You know, when you go all the way down their bench, uh, just from their starting lineup this year, then you take into account, hey, you got Dragic coming off the bench. Well, now he's not, but in the regular season he was. Uh, you had Crowder coming off the bench. You had Iguodala coming off the bench. You had Tyler Hero coming off the bench. You had Kelly Olynyk coming off the bench. So all the way down the line, it's a tough rotation to crack. So um, I think both Kendrick and Myers are, are, are going to be needed at some point here in the playoffs. Myers probably more with, with the Bucks uh, against the Bucks than, you know, uh, than against the Pacers. But, but man, it's, it's a tough situation for Kendrick. You know, I, it's, it's hard to fathom, you know, the mental aspect of it. Going from a you know you're a top three candidate for for rookie of the year, and then you go you just go into straight DMPs and you don't see that often in the league, you know you just you just don't. So my biggest worry right now is is where he's at mentally because you got you got to think this is a guy that throughout his high school career, throughout his college career, throughout his professional career up to this point, he's never not played. You know the only the only time that's even come close to this is in training camp with the Warriors in 2018. And I remember having conversations with him, you know, because it's it's such, you know, uncharted waters where you're having to deal with, man, I, I may or may not play. You know, if I if I don't play, you know, I got I obviously keep a good attitude. But, but if, if anything, Kendrick should just be looking at Myers. Myers Myers is doing it the right way. He's always done it the right way. And 
brings the energy on the bench and and uh, and obviously makes it about the team. Obviously, I'm not saying that Kendrick isn't, but I'm I'm understanding, you know that that there is you know reason for him to be upset. You know, this is the first time this has ever happened to him, and and this typically happens in the playoffs. These these rotations shrink. You go with experience, you know, more times than not. And, and when you have guys on your team like Andre Iguodala, and you have guys on your team like Goran Dragic, um, and then the way Tyler Harrow's been playing as well as a rookie, even just for a rookie and a twenty year old, is 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 pretty incredible. So, you know, I I don't think that that Kendrick is just done by any means. I, I still think he'll he'll get some time here, uh, if not in this Pacers series, um, then potentially in the Bucks series, and he'll have his big moments. You know, I'm pretty confident of that. But let's dive right into this mailbag. You know, obviously the draft lottery taking place last night and wasn't the same as it usually is. Obviously last year, everyone knew that whoever got the number one pick uh, was taking Zion Williamson. So the Pelicans, I remember them putting the camera in the Pelicans front office and and, and in a conference room and they're all going nuts because they knew who they were getting. Whereas this year it's a little bit different. I mean, it's it's somewhat of a crapshoot who's gonna who's gonna go number one, and you know, in my mind, it's got to be it's got to be Anthony Edwards. If you're if you're the Timberwolves and you keep the pick, it has to be Anthony Edwards. I, I think you can't. I don't like the pairing of D'Angelo Russell and Lamella Ball. A lot of people have talked about it. I don't. I don't, I don't like it. Um, I think I think D'Lo's capable of playing off the ball he showed that you know a little bit with the Warriors but but he's a guy who's whose bread's buttered when when he's handling the ball when he's coming off ball screens and and getting downhill and making plays and and honestly that's saying that's the same formula for LaMelo and LaMelo's not a good enough shooter off the ball to justify just sticking him you know as a as a shooting guard so I'd rule them out. Obviously, I don't think you take Wiseman at one just because you already have Carl Anthony Towns. And that aspect of it, it just doesn't make sense. And, and honestly, the Wolves the Wolves turned it on a tad at the end of the year. I think Malik Beasley was a huge pickup for them. Um, they picked up Hernan Gomez. There's a lot of guys that they have on that team that fit that mold. And I'm, I'm just not sure that the value for James Wiseman – uh, and I think I tweeted this out, but the value for James Wiseman will not, in my mind, this it's, this is the highest his value is going to be, and, you know, before getting into the league. So I think he becomes a trade chip. If he falls to the Hornets, they'll take him. But, you know, I you could make the trade. You know, if you're the Warriors, I think they don't keep the pick. I think they trade that pick. And... Do you use Wiseman as the trade chip or do you use LaMelo Ball as a trade chip? You got to think about what's valued in the NBA today. And a traditional big man just isn't. So what's going to be the market for a guy like James Wiseman? You know, and and then at the same time, who do the Warriors go and get? In my in my mind they need to go get a 3 and D guy. Like a potent 3 and D guy, Trevor Reza, you know, any of these guys that can they can sit down and guard and space. And then I think you need a little bit of help 
you know, in, in the front court, just a little bit of help. And I don't know. And maybe you make that trade with the Bulls. Maybe maybe you flop picks, you flip picks with the Bulls, and you get a guy like Thad Young. Um, you know, it, that 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 could be an option. But I think the Bulls don't need James Wiseman. So if you're gonna flip that pick, you probably gotta you probably got throw Lamelo in there for the Warriors. Um, but one of the first mailbag questions was, will the Bulls trade up? Will they trade down for assets? Who do they pick? You know, I'm I'm not sure there's enough talent in this draft to just lose assets, you know, and trade away assets. I think I think the Bulls, the first order of business, you need a point guard. And with that number four pick, you know, who makes sense? You're not gonna get a top tier guy by any means, especially as a point guard in the NBA. But a guy like Spencer Dinwiddie comes to mind. Look, the Nets have an embarrassment of riches at the guard spot. How much will Spencer Dinwiddie be featured next year? He's a guy that that you can afford to lose, and he still has value. You know, he averaged 20 points a game last year, you know, around six assists. And I think he's a guy that that could come in for the Bulls and and do well. You know, I I don't think he's you know, I don't, I don't think he could – I could he develop into an all-star? I, You know, it's possible. It's certainly possible. I mean, he was averaging 20 a game for a playoff team this year. So you can't you can't completely rule it out. But, you know, if you do pick up a guy like Dinwiddie or you pick up a guy like, you know, Alfred Payton has a reasonable contract. Um, you know, he's making eight mil a year. Do you go get a Dennis Smith Jr.? Um, do you get a Jeff Teague? Do you get kind of – bring in kind of a more experienced – point guard you know to go alongside this younger core I mean you got to think about it so you go let's say you're who's your new starting lineup so you take any of those point guards let's just say it's Dinwiddie you go Dinwiddie at the one you know with Levine and and you're obviously interchanging there Dinwiddie played a little bit off the ball as well that's that's the reason why because you want Levine coming off some of these ball screens if you're going to go get Kenny Atkinson First of all, Dinwiddie's used to playing for Kenny Atkinson. Second of all, Zach Levine needs to be coming off some ball screens too. And they can both play on and off the ball. Then you have Otto Porter at the three, you have Marketing at the four, and you have Wendell Carter at the five. You know, and that that bench, Sadaransky is a point guard. You know, it's he's an okay starting point guard in the NBA. You're not going to win a ton of games, but he's a good backup point guard. I think Kobe White showed this year, if you go and look at a roster, they're going to label him as a point guard. He ain't a point guard. But he can shoot the hell out of it. And he's a guy that, you know, he'll come in and space the floor and and knock down shots, and and he's explosive. You know, and then you have a guy like Thad Young, who who I guess you could lure as as a trade piece. He has enough value. Um, He's very, very well respected in the league as a veteran. Um, but you just aren't in a position to just throw assets around. Obviously, you have the fourth pick, you have the 44th pick, but you know you could trade down and collect assets. You know that's that's certainly a possibility. This this draft is actually relatively strong in between you know seven to twelve. Like it's actually a pretty strong middle of the draft. So you could theoretically trade down, and maybe you go get somebody like an R.J. Hampton. Maybe you go get somebody like, you know, Killian Hayes, um, 
you know, there's there's a few different guys that you can go after. Um, maybe you want some more shooting, right? You know, and you and you take a guy uh, like Devin Vassell from uh, from Florida State. You know, there's 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 going to be guys available. So, you know, what position are you putting yourself in, and, and what's the Bulls' plan moving forward? Like, there has to be a plan. You know, if you're going to go get one of these point guards, there has to be a developmental plan. You know, for the future, um, you know, you obviously don't want to break the bank. You want to continue to collect assets, just like the Celtics did. You know, just like, um, just like the Atlanta Hawks did. Uh, there's a lot of teams that have built their way through the draft. I mean, the Warriors did. You know, take out the the KD acquisition, and the Warriors built through the draft, and they they picked well. They picked fits, and and that's kind of the same lineage that the that the Bulls need to go on. So. Um, but I've always said the one guy that would be a perfect fit for the Bulls in this moment in time, they'll never get him because somebody's going to pay him a ton of money. Um, and it may be the Raptors, but the Bulls would love to have Fred Van Vliet. Love to have him. I'm not just saying that because he's an Illinois guy. He's just the type of guy that he's he's a culture guy. He makes everybody better. You can play him on the ball. You can play him off the ball. He's proved that in Toronto. He's the perfect fit for the Chicago Bulls. Um, I just don't think, number one, you know, are you going to throw a ton of money at him in free agency? Because somebody is. That would be next year. You know, but two, are, are you going to have, you know, are, are, do you have enough trade chips or enough trade value on your team to lure him away from Toronto? And I just, and I just don't think that's the case. And, you know, if I look at, if you look at Fred Van Vliet's contract, so right now he's obviously, he's making 18 million, you know, he signed a, he signed a two-year deal for 18 million um, prior to the 18-19 season. So he's, he's a, he's a free agent. He's a free agent this off season. So that's, that could be a guy that you, that you throw some money at. He's going to be in, Fred Van Vliet is going to be just south in my opinion it'll be just south of the 20 million dollar a year range you know you gotta think the other a couple years ago terry rosier signed for three years 58 million i think that's going to be the same type of contract that fred van vliet signs so maybe you go get him maybe you go get fred van vliet you got your point guard now you stock up on on some more wing talent some shooting you maybe you get isaac okuro um, you know, all of that, all of that should be in play. Number two, where does LeBron rank among current players? I had a great conversation with Tyler Underwood about this, um, yesterday and him and I are both kind of on the same page with this. You got to understand LeBron is in his 17th year and the way that to me, the way MVP voting and the way, you know, your standing is amongst the best players in the league, it shouldn't be on a sliding scale. Like it shouldn't be weighted differently because of where you're at in your career. It's either you are a top five player or you're a top 10 player or you're not. And and you don't get seven extra spots because you're in your 17th year. Like in my mind right now, LeBron James is the fifth best player in the NBA. 
He's the fifth best player, which in his 17th year, that's incredible. Incredible in itself. And right now, you're talking about guys that I would take over LeBron. Right now. Kawhi Leonard, Kevin Durant, Steph Curry, Giannis. Those are the four guys. And honestly, like right there with LeBron is James Harden. So I got LeBron five. I got Harden six. I got Lillard seven. I got Luka Doncic eight. Anthony Davis nine. Nikola Jokic 10. And then knocking on the door, Joel Embiid, Clay Thompson, Jason Tatum, Devin Booker. Those are all guys that I think are right there, you know, kind of knocking on the door in the, in the conversation. Um, take that back. I'm forgetting someone. So Yo- I got Jokic at 10, and then right there I think is Paul George at 11. Um, but you got to understand, like, the the way that LeBron has changed his game, it's it's not going to help the Lakers down the road. Like you still need LeBron to be a scoring threat, and right now I think a lot of teams are playing the pass on him, and he's done this thing where later on in his career, if you're not scoring at the same clip that you're used to, and you can look at stats and say, oh yeah, he's still averaging twenty five a game. But anyone that watches the game knows that LeBron isn't scoring like LeBron used to. You know, getting into the lane, finishing over guys, you know, hitting those turnaround fadeaways, and and you know he's he's hit he's hit a few jumpers. Obviously, he struggled in the bubble from the outside, but but look, once you start to to change your game, because he has so his usage is so high, he can get ten assists in a game. You got to think a lot of these NBA players, and this is the, the argument that I made with Russell Westbrook, the the top tier ball dominant players in the NBA. So think about this: you have ninety. I, so I this was this was Russell Westbrook's triple double year. Now I was just trying to break it down. You have ninety six. I think he had ninety six touches a game. Russell Westbrook. So you got to think. Of those 96 touches, let's say he takes 20 shots, right? A lot of his passes, and this is this is why Russell Westbrook had a lot of triple doubles, a lot of his passes are at the end of the shot clock where the guy that he passes to has to take the shot. But even if, it's, even if that's not the case, right? So you have 20 of the 96 are him shooting the ball. Let's say he makes... You know, so so that's that's to assume, all right, 20 of the 96, and then what, 76 other of the rest of them are have to be passes, right? So let's say on 30 of those passes, a guy is shooting the ball. So that's leaving 40 where he's just like swinging it around the arc or he's, you know, 40 or 45 where he's not passing to a guy that's shooting the ball. But let's say 40 of those, there are guys shooting the ball. 35, 40 of those. If the, if those guys that he's passing to shoot 25 to 30% on those passes, he's getting 10 assists. And it's the same thing with LeBron. It's just usage. It's usage. I mean, you don't even need to, to put your 
players in a great situation to score. Granted, LeBron, I think, does an unbelievable job of that. He's a fantastic passer. But I also think he's transitioned into this part of his career where he'll, he gets a, a pass, no pun intended, for being the passing guy. Oh, but he's averaging, he's leading the league in assists. Yeah, great. They helped him last night because they made shots. But he needs to be more, he needs to be more assertive in my eyes. Well, he had 10, 7, and 7 last night. I mean, you better hope that AD comes to play every single game if those are the types of games that LeBron's gonna have. So that's no knock, that's no knock on LeBron. Like I mentioned, I'll go back to it. It's his 17th year. That's hard to do. It's hard to be a top five player in your 17th year. I don't care what sport you're in. So I guess that's all I'll say about that. I have plenty of friends that, that call me a LeBron hater. I think I think LeBron's fantastic. I think he's I respect his game. Um he'll go down as one of the best players of all time. Um he'll he'll absolutely have the best resume of all time. It may not be championships, but but he'll be top, you know. He'll probably be the, the leading scorer of all time. He'll be up there in assists. He'll be up there, you know, probably in steals. He'll be up there in, in, in rebounds. He'll end up being up there in rebounds. He'll end up being up there in, any, in all of them. So, you know, you'll look back. People will look back in 30 years and, and see where his standing is in the in the record books and be like, oh, how's this guy not the best player of all time? So it's not for a lack of respect. Third question. Can Luca develop a consistent three-point shot? Okay, and I was actually thinking about this the other night. I was texting back and forth with one of my friends, and and I was like, man, does Luca have too much arc on his shot? On his three-point shot specifically. I to, to me, he has too much arc on it. Like, there's too much variability when it's up in the air. And you can make the same argument on the other side where if your shot is too flat, now you're running the risk of shooting a lot of shots short. And when you shoot a lot of shots short, you have no chance. That's a Coach Nagy staple at Wright State. He would get he would get enraged when we would miss short because if you miss short, you give it no chance to go in. If you miss long, there's still a chance. So Luca has that down. You know, he has enough arc where he's not missing short all the time. But he takes too many tough ones. He takes too many tough ones to shoot a good percentage, right? So, you know, he was 32% from three his rookie year, 31% this year. And 31% on nine attempts a game should hurt your team. Like, that should hurt your team. But I was thinking about this the other night, and I was, I was having some conversations about it. Because I kept seeing it happen over and over again. Next time you watch a Mavericks game, watch how many Luka missed threes are rebounded by his own team. There's something about the arc that is put on his shot. And anyone that's that's an offensive rebounder knows this. The The guys on your team that have the most arc, it gives you the best chance to, to track the trajectory of the ball. And, and then you have guys, obviously... Tim Hardaway Jr. is an athlete. Dorian Finney-Smith is an athlete. Porzingis is an athlete. Like, all those guys are given a chance to track the ball. I saw DeLon Wright went in there and grabbed a few. And it's all off of Lucas misses. You know, so... I think that's that's something that I kind of want to do somewhat of a study on. 
how many of his threes are turned into second chance opportunities for the Mavericks? I think it's a decent amount. Or when I say a decent amount, I think it's it's above what league average would be. Because 31% on nine attempts should be absolutely killing your team. But I, but they're getting some of those back. So the percentage isn't really indicative of of you know what it means for the Mavs as a whole. But look, you know, I think if he develops that part of the game, it's going to be scary. You know, if he he's fine. You don't need Luka Doncic to shoot 40% from 3. Because the reality is, a lot of those point guards, and this is why when you look at guys like Steph Curry, who's a career 43% three-point shooter, how insane that is for a point guard. Because you're the guy at the end of the shot clock that's hoisting them up. Good shot, bad shot. And, and you know, at the end of the shot clock, it's not like they're just not counting those threes because they're difficult. I mean, it's, I think that's a big reason why Damian Lillard, Damian Lillard's a great shooter, but, you know, he, he snuck over 40% this year, I think mainly because of what he did in the bubble. But before that, I mean, you got to talk about the last five years. He's gone 34, 36, 36, 35, 37. I think he's a, I think he's a better shooter than those numbers indicate, but he's also, he also has the ball at the end of the shot clock a lot. So he's taking tough ones, and all, all those factor into your percentage. Which to me makes it more insane that Steph Curry's where he's at in terms of career percentage, forty-three. That's a that's a catch and shoot standstill shooter percentage. Clay's right around the same spot. Duncan Robinson's going to be right around the same spot. And and that's forty-three percent factoring in the fact that he is doing acrobatic shots. It's insane. He's the best shooter ever. I don't want to hear it. I don't want to hear any argument. Number four. Uh, will the Rockets run into a wall against the Lakers? You know, watching the Rockets yesterday, again, Tyler Underwood and I were talking about this. I mean, it was so much fun to watch. So much fun to watch. Those guys played their asses off. Absolutely played their asses off. And I, and the really, really cool part about it was they have such a nuanced way of playing the game. Obviously, D'Antoni ushered in the style, the seven seconds or less. It's much less of that because James Harden himself is dribbling for seven seconds um, at least. But they have an identity. You know, they absolutely have an offensive identity. They are going to see what they can get out of James Harden to start the possession. And if he doesn't have it, there are guys camping in the corner. P.J. Tucker, and this is what I said before the seizure, before the series, the Blazers have to do exactly what the Rockets are doing in order to have a chance. You know what I mean? Like you have to have these guys camping in the corner that are that are willing to make open shots. And that's what the Rockets have. They've surrounded James Harden and give the front office credit. They've brought in guys there that can shoot the ball and defend and just put them around James Harden and and you're good. Smooth sailing. Most times and, and I don't know if this is this is a, you know, this has to do with Russell Westbrook being out. Like, do the do the Rockets' chances drop when Russell Westbrook's on the court? He's not the defender that some of those guys are that, that are currently on the court. So now you have James Harden and Russell Westbrook, who who are both capable defenders, but they're not going to guard. You know, like, there's just too much. James Harden's relied upon too much to be like a a, a face guard in your kitchen defender 
you know, I think a lot of people expect that out of him. But you got to understand the the amount of cardio that is required to do as much dribbling that he does and as much movement as he does on the offensive end and or, and still have your legs to shoot the ball. It's insane. But look, the Rockets looked like the 2004 Pistons yesterday because the Thunder have zero offensive identity. I mean, it was it was laughable. Their offense was Chris Paul shot fake, one dribble kick, Shea Gillis Alexander shot fake, one dribble kick back to Chris Paul. Chris Paul, this literally happened at one point in the game. Chris Paul shot faked, one dribble kick to Gilgis Alexander. Gilgis Alexander shot faked, one dribble kicked it back to Chris Paul. Chris Paul shot faked, one dribble back to Alexander. Alexander shot faked, one dribble back to Chris Paul. That was an offensive sequence yesterday for the Thunder. And Dennis Schroeder wasn't any better. Because here's the thing. When you have an offense like that with zero identity and you have two non-shooters on the floor, there's nowhere to go. Like The Rockets can just pack it in. They're not guarding Lou Dort, and they're not going to guard Steven Adams from 15-plus feet. So you're really, really hampered with what you're doing. And then now when you go when you play the Lakers, it's a tad different, right? Like AD can space the floor. Um, and then if they do have a lineup like – Okay, now you have LeBron. Maybe you maybe you dare LeBron to make shots. Maybe that's a formula for the Rockets. Because you have LeBron, you have AD. You, you ain't gonna leave Danny Green. I know he hasn't been shooting it well, but water finds its level. I mean, the guys the guys hit seven threes in an NBA Finals game before. You know, KCP is is a capable shooter. J.R. Smith is erratic, but he can make shots. Deion Waiters can make shots. You haven't seen much of him in the playoffs, but he can make shots. Caruso's capable. Like they're they they're gonna space the floor a lot better than than the Thunder. You know, and 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 they also have an identity on offense. They play through AD. In the long post, cutters, space, shoot. That's the Lakers MO. So it's much different. The the Rockets are gonna be playing a much different team here in the second round. You know, the, the Thunder might figure it out. You know, but I don't know. It's not looking good for them. I, I had higher hopes for them coming into the series, but the Rockets has just they've just been so good with that smaller lineup. So, you know, will they run into a wall against the Lakers? Yes, I think they will. I think they will. Next question: What should Illinois' five to ten year plan be? Illinois basketball. You know, this is a tricky question because I think it's something that, you know, as a coach, you maybe you you probably want to have some thought, but also you want to take care of the here and now. And, and let's start with the here and now. In this current climate, let me just say this to start. In this current climate of college basketball, having an experienced team is so critical. And when I say the current climate, I mean the pandemic. And I mean in a potential abbreviated season coming up. You know, and, and what it's going to look like moving forward. Because the younger teams are going to have their growth stunted. They're going to have their growth stunted. You need so many guys on your team. You need so much senior leadership, upperclassmen, veteran leadership for this upcoming year. More than ever. More than ever to keep guys locked in, keep guys dialed in. It may be a bubble situation. You know, and, and at that point, the one thing that you need is is buy-in. And I'll talk about that in the next question. But but I look at the the makeup of this Illinois team, great young pieces that are coming in, but who are they following? 
They're following Io. They're following George. They're following Demonte. And Tyler being back is a huge deal. It's a huge deal. It's just another guy that understands the culture that that can help implement it. And and moving forward, the quicker you can get your younger guys on board with that, you know, the quicker you can get Adam Miller and and Curbelo and and all these freshmen that have come in, and even the transfers that come in, the learning curve. If you can, if you can, you know, quicken the learning curve in a sense to where, you know, next year if Io's gone. When Demonte's gone, if Tyler's gone, if these guys are gone, then guys like Adam Miller and Corbella can just pick it up. They can pick up right where they left off, and when the new classes are ushered in, they can they can say, "Hey, this is our culture." That's where it all starts, and then from there, it's a it's a it's a four step plan. Because you can you can scrap this entire four step plan if you don't have culture, and Illinois has a culture now. They have an they have an identity, and and that's another thing too. So my four step plan, and 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 listen to me when I say this. There's a transition period that happens in recruiting. You go from recruiting top talent, you know, you obviously, and and you know how it is. If you're a fan base, you're looking for the five stars. You're looking for the four stars. Okay, great. Let's recruit top talent. But then at some point, those the recruiting top talent turns into recruiting top fits because you're going to have an abundance of talent. Not, not every guy is going to go to the NBA. So instead of just stockpiling you know, 15 talented guys on a team, you have to be able to, to, to bring on fits. And as a fan base, you have to understand that, that that's not always going to equate to a five-star to a four-star player. There's three stars that have ended up being top 10 picks in the NBA draft. You know, Victor Oladipo is the 144th ranked player in the country. Came to Indiana, you know, fast forward three years later, and, you know, he's the number two pick in the draft. Frank Kaminsky, three-star recruit, not ranked, but was developed at Wisconsin. They have a winning culture. They have an identity. Um, and, and, and him being able to win games was, was exposure for himself, you know, and exposure for the team, those guys on those Wisconsin teams, um, they're looked at differently from in, in the professional ranks coming from a program like that. So you recruit top talent, you develop said talent, you perform top five in the league and you find ways to send guys to the NBA. In my mind, that's how you have a, a successful five to ten year plan. But let me be very clear: recruiting top talent turns into recruiting top fits when you when you have an abundance of talent. But all of that you have to have an identity. What is your identity as a team? I mean, you can go down the list. You know, for a team like Wisconsin, first thing I think of: those guys are smart. They take care of the ball. They defend. And they're they're high IQ guys on the offensive end, bar none. You know, all of them have been that way since even since you know since my freshman year and before that. Michigan State, obviously, they'll recruit in top talent. They'll bring in the blue chip guys, but they're tough. They're tough. Like that was always the the mo when when we were there. Like they're just they're a tough team. They slap the floor. Now, I'm not saying that makes you tough, but. But that's just kind of their their identity. But they they've brought in guys too that have been a part of winning culture for Michigan State 
that have gone far in the tournament and you set yourself up to be in a good spot professionally. Look at Bryn Forbes. You know, is, is, is Bryn Forbes on the San Antonio Spurs if he doesn't go to Michigan State, if he stays at Cleveland State? I, I don't know. I don't know. It's hard to say because the same formula is probably the opposite for Kendrick Nunn. You know, like I said, you have to have an identity. Like, go, like if you think that going to a school, thinking that their specific offensive scheme or their specific defensive scheme is, is going to get you into the NBA somehow, you're fooling yourself. Your best chance of, of becoming more marketable to the NBA is winning. It's winning. You know, unless you're unless you're a top five pick or maybe even a lottery pick, let's say let, let's say you're a lottery pick, then yeah, you can throw wins and losses out the window. But if you're a guy that wants to wants to be a late first round pick, if you're a guy that wants to be a second round pick, especially in the second round, go back and look at, at second round draft picks. They come from from good programs. Because as I've mentioned, I've said this time and time again, if you are a second round pick, most likely you are a 9th, 10th, 11th, 12th guy on an NBA roster. And the 9th, 10th, 11th, 12th guy can't be an issue in the locker room. Can't be a complete emotional roller coaster when he's not playing. So that's why these second round picks have to have squeaky clean resumes. So like I mentioned, your best chance of getting to the league, and forget I, I feel like I'm talking like I like what's the best chance to get to the NBA. We're talking about Illinois' five to ten year plan. Culture is there. Culture is there. You have Io and even even Kobe. Last year was such a turn the corner year that guys are going to do it. They get a, they get a sniff of it, right? You know, they they get a taste of it, and they want to do whatever they can, you know, from last year to this year to improve on that. And luckily. You'll still have, you'll still have another year after this of Georgie you know, to kind of help write the ship from a leadership standpoint, and and that's going to pay dividends too. Like you have to have guys like Georgie in your program. Georgie wasn't a top, you know, a four star, five star recruit. I believe his other offer was Hofstra. And say what you want about Georgie, but he's had a massive impact on that culture. And those are the type of guys. Those are those are the fits that I'm talking about. Like you recruit fits. You know, after you bring in, obviously, so after you bring in the talented pieces, you have to recruit fits. Underwood's done an awesome job of that. And then developing the talent, right? Like, that's that's such an important part of it um, from big man's perspective. You know, Orlando and, and all those guys have have been great. You know, I know, you know, Gentry's one of the best when it comes to, to X's and O's and, and knowing the game and, and instilling kind of the IQ aspect of the game for a lot of these players and 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 chins as as charismatic as they come and 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 I think when you want to perform top five in the league year in and year out and and I I get it like there's when you have top talent there's going to be years where you have turnover but you know if the culture's still in place then it doesn't really matter you look at a team like Villanova and whether they have top talent top draft picks or not you know they still have that you know, that North star, so to speak of like, Hey, there's our culture, you know, let's just follow that. So look, you just have to be ready to, you gotta be ready for anything this year, whether it's a a 15 game season or whether it's, um, you know, if it's a, if it's a seven game season that gets cut short, like you have to be ready for anything. And that brings me to my, to my final question, you know, the, the college basketball, you know, can college basketball pull off a bubble and what's that look like? 
you know, uh, you obviously have to factor in, and I've had I've had a lot of conversations, you know, with people in in the college ranks, um, a lot of people that I trust. You know, I was I was just talking about this the other day, with with Nick Goff, the director of basketball operations at Wright State, who's one of the brightest minds, especially on the Dobo side of things. I mean, he's just he's he's awesome in terms of you know the way he goes about his business and 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 how organized he is, and and so this is something that that is on his mind, obviously, um, you know, I think that the things you have to look at are, you know, as, as, you know, I was talking with him, it's, it's finances, it's, it's time frame, it's logistics, it's classes. And you can throw all that out the window if there's not buy-in. If you're going to do a college basketball bubble and me being a, a former bubble occupant, if there's no buy-in, you ain't having a bubble. And if you do have a bubble and there's no buy-in, you're going home probably sooner than you think. And 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 when I say buy-in, I don't just mean be bought into the idea of doing the bubble. There needs to be sustained buy-in for the duration of the stay. You got to think if, if there's, let's say there's the Big Ten Conference, right? And they want to do a bubble in Indianapolis, or they want to do a bubble, name a place. I mean, it, it doesn't matter. The Big Ten, Big Ten has the money for it. They can put guys up in hotels over winter break. Um, but with an abbreviated season, I mean, let's say we have a 15-game season. That means these losing seasons are going to come a lot quicker than usual. For example, if there's a 15-game season or if there's a 12-game conference season, you start 0-3, or 0-4, you're probably done. In reality, you're most likely done. You you may have a chance to make a late run, but you know what's like if I'm Northwestern or Penn State, I'm just naming two schools, right? If I'm just two schools I can think off the top of my head. Northwestern starts 0-4, or Penn State starts 0-4 in the bubble. What's the incentive to to keep that sustained buy-in? For what? And I'm not saying from my perspective, like from my perspective, obviously I would stay bought in. I think most people would do that, but you're talking about 18 to 22 year old guys. When you lose the reason why you came there, which is to win games and put yourself in a position to win a championship, however that looks, and you see that slipping away, like what's your buy-in look like now? And I think it, maybe you are more likely to have a guy sneak out of the hotel and he goes and gets it. What's testing look like? Do we have quick turnarounds with these saliva tests? At the TBT, obviously, we didn't get our results till till next day. But you have a guy that decides to sneak out of the hotel the day before a game and you're talking about next day results. It probably isn't showing up next day if he contracts it. You know, Then you're talking about going and playing on a court and spreading it. So... There needs to be buy-in, and like I mentioned, all ties back. Like the teams with great culture are the teams that are going to be there standing at the end. Like it's it's never more needed than this year. But this all becomes a tad easier if classes go online nationwide. Seems like we're getting we're getting some of that. I I think some schools will just remain on campus. But if not, if these classes aren't all online, you have to squeeze as many games as possible into winter break. 
as many games as possible, whatever that looks like. 9, 10, 11, 12 conference games, try to squeeze them in. If you can get to 12, I think that's a really good number. That's a good enough number where you can say either one, we have a champion, or two, you know, we have, we can set ourselves up to do a championship. Or maybe you take the top four and you do a separate bubble. Or now you're limiting exposure because of the amount of people. That's just all, those are all things to look at. But I, I also had the idea where you have two bubbles in a season. You have a regional non-conference bubble. And this would probably be more for the mid-majors, to be honest. But you have a regional non-conference bubble and then you have a conference bubble. So my to, to get an idea, so your regional non-conference bubble. And you'd have to find ways to, you know, to do this. And I'm not, not sure high major teams would join. You know, like if we said, hey, we're going to do a regional bubble in whatever you want to call it, Bloomington, Illinois. So Northwestern comes down, Loyola comes down, you know, Illinois State's there, Eastern Illinois, Western Illinois, Illinois, like all these teams can come to this regional non-conference bubble and, you know, finances are obviously going to be a potential issue. I don't know what what it's going to look like for some of those teams to put, you know, to put a team in a hotel for for two weeks or however you want to call it, week and a half, two weeks. But because some of these mid-major teams are losing out on these buy games, maybe you recoup some of that and you're able to to allow these mid-majors to save the money. If you can bring a high major along that wants to potentially foot the cost on hotels for the non-conference for the for the for the mid-major teams, I think that may be outlandish, but you got to think either way in a normal year. I mean, you're giving up 200 grand for the game. So or 100 grand just just to have the buy game. So those could be things that are that are thought about. You know, you do your regional non-conference bubble. Now you can squeeze in and hey, maybe you bring in into that regional non-conference bubble. Northwestern's in there, maybe you bring Wisconsin down, you bring in UW Milwaukee and you can knock out a couple conference games as well before getting to just like we do with the December now, early December Big 10 games. So before you even get to the conference bubble, you have two to three under your belt. Now, if you try to play the winter break and you're, you know, 11, 12 uh, games, now you're up closer to 15, right? So any way that you can squeeze them in and how realistic is that? I don't know. But the next question becomes, you know, for a lot of these fall athletes, a lot of these football players, they're basically saying, hey, regardless of if you play or not, you get an extra year. So athletes getting a free year, even if they play, how does that look? To me, the number is 60%. 60% is the number. If you can, if this upcoming season has 60% the number of games, 60% or more the number of games that are typically played in college basketball season, which is which is typically in a regular season is 32 games. So if you are anywhere around 20 plus, if you get over 20 games, I, I don't think that that there needs to be another year given to these to these guys. You know, but if it's anything below 20 in my mind, you should at least have the option to come back. You know, 
So, I mean, it, it won't be as big of a deal. This whole situation, I don't think, won't will be as big of a deal for a, for a high major team. But, but the ricochet effect that this has at the mid major level, you know, could be interesting. You got to think a lot of these take any great program at the high major level, and you take their seniors and their seniors leave, and you have this sophomore that maybe wasn't playing much that all of a sudden can develop into an NBA draft pick or an all-league guy, that just doesn't happen at the mid-major level as often. So when you lose your your typically – a lot of these mid-major teams that are, that are great teams are upperclassmen, senior-laden teams. So you, you really, really hurt them by just having them lose a year, um, essentially. And, and how, how do you recover from that, right? But then on the flip of it – what does it look like from recruiting? So let's say you have four seniors on your team, all four elect to come back uh, for a sixth year, fifth year, whatever it may be for them. So how does that look in terms of incoming scholarships? Do Are you now on kind of base, the baseball type partial scholarships if you're an incoming freshman? And if so, does school's tuition factor in now? Do lower tuitions make you more of a potential landing spot for recruits. You know, like, hey, you can either pay 60%. You're, hey, you're on 60% scholarship or you're on 50% scholarship at a, at a school that's, you know, I made, the, I made the comparison the other day, you know, and obviously Wright State and SMU are, are rarely in, in recruiting battles, but you got to think, guys are probably a lot less likely if, if they're on partial scholarships to go to SMU. Where you're paying seventy grand a year, essentially. Like maybe you are opting towards a you know, Wright State has has cheaper tuition. Wright State's right around ten K or fifteen K for a you know, for, for tuition. And honestly, you know, that that makes you that makes as a school, that makes you more marketable. Like if I'm a I don't know, if I'm a parent, you know, I'm looking at that I'm looking at that stuff and you know, and saying, hey, Maybe we go here. Saves us some money. Like that's going to become another wrinkle in the recruiting race. <laughs> um, so it remains to be seen. But but man, I had, I had fun with this mailbag today. A lot, a lot of really good questions. Ones that I wish I could expound upon even more. For the NBA draft, obviously, I'm going to do a full NBA mock draft. I'm going to go back to the... I know I, I put out like a huge preview for... The NCAA tournament. I'm gonna do the same for for the NBA draft. I'm kind of do like, hey, here's the best available players, and here's w- where I think they should go, and what that mock draft looks like. Um, so I'm gonna do that. I'm excited. Uh, but I appreciate you guys sending in these questions. They were awesome. You know, obviously we'll we'll continue to do the mailbag. You know, it's it's awesome kind of seeing these questions that are sent in. There's there's a lot of them. A lot of them to go through and and pick out. So um, so yeah. Everybody enjoy their weekend. Obviously, it's Friday, unique. Typically, we don't put out an episode on Friday, but but here we are. Enjoy the weekend, guys. Take care. It's full 94. Jesus came to me. He once was a widow. Now he's a savior making money on.